双数超过了一万张数。喂，黑人，黑人。This is what they felt like when it happened, and today, it's how we should feel too. Because what it meant for them, it means for us. That's just good, isn't it? Isn't that good? And I hope that stirs you and、uh, emotionally reminds you of what this good news. That、uh, this time of year is celebrating、uh, ought to make us feel, and、uh, I thought that kind of captures what I want you to hopefully not just feel because of a video, but actually feel because of our study that we're beginning today.、Uh, today's Palm Sunday, and typically and traditionally we would focus on the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I want to take us in a A little different、uh, direction. We would typically say crucifixion this Sunday and resurrection next Sunday, and then sadly, often we would then after Easter go back to our daily routine, our weekly routine, and kind of everything settles down, and we kind of tend to lose the emotion and lose the focus and lose the the good news of the resurrection. So to kind of help us with that. I want to mix it up a bit and look at the resurrection for not just this Sunday and next Sunday, but for the、uh, the entire eight weeks as we look at a study of First Corinthians 15. So why don't you turn there in your Bibles, First Corinthians 15, one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. In fact, it's the only chapter in the Bible that discusses the resurrection. And its implications to the depth and the degree, and with the practicality of—I、uh, mean, just no other chapter is like it. And it doesn't just focus on the resurrection of Jesus. So, you know, probably some of you more seasoned、uh, veterans around here—if if I said, "Hey, where's the resurrection chapter or a, a, a doctrinal study of Jesus' resurrection?" Many of you would say, "Oh, yeah, that's First Corinthians 15." But the reality is, the chapter is really not so much about Jesus's resurrection as it is about our resurrection in the future. So Jesus has resurrected; that's in the past. It's really talking about our resurrection as Christ、uh, Christ followers in the future. In fact, our bodily resurrection. In fact, according to verse twelve, if you look at verse twelve in your in your Bible, this. Is where the main problem was, and what the chapter is really trying to deal it with. So look at verse twelve. Notice what it says. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, there's the past. How do some among you say that there is 
no resurrection of the dead in the future. And so it's this confusion that this chapter is trying to correct. Here you have, and this is kind of hard for us to grasp perhaps, here's born-again Christians who had heard the gospel preached by none other than the Apostle Paul, as well as even hearing the Apostle Peter and Apollos and just the greatest teachers and preachers, the celebrity pastors of the day, they had all preached about this. They had received it. They were standing in it, as we're going to see. But they were confused about one of the most essential aspects of the gospel, the future resurrection of his followers. So that, that's kind of hard to grasp. And if they didn't get this confusion and error corrected, if they didn't take heed to chapter 15, it would call into question the very fact of their salvation. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. But to get us in the chapter, I, I don't, we won't read the whole chapter, but let's read verses 1 through 12 together. So, follow along in your Bible as I read 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 12. And notice how essential understanding the doctrine of not only Christ's resurrection, but our own future resurrection uh, is to the gospel and even to our salvation. So let's look at uh, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are literally being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that is, Peter, then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and that's the stepbrother, the half-brother of Jesus, half-brother, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to, toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. So you are saved. So you are being saved. So you must hold fast unless you believed in vain. Now, this chapter is also the most important chapter in the whole book of 1 Corinthians. Um, <coughs> it's the key to understanding the entire book. In fact, one Bible uh, uh, student of this, of this letter calls this chapter not only the conclusion, but also the crown of the book and the clue to the meaning of the book. So see, other people alliterate besides just me. This chapter is packed full of sound doctrine for sound living. And since it is the conclusion, the crown, and the clue to the entire book, I want to give you an overview of this church, and in a sense, an overview of this letter, 
so that you know why this chapter is so important and and you can begin to relate to it. I want you to identify with the Corinthians. That's kind of a scary thing to do because we're going to see they're really messed up people, but they were born again people. And last time I looked in the mirror and to be quite frank, looked around this class, I see a lot of born again people and I see messed up people. Amen. All right. Look at your neighbor and say, you may be saved, but you're still messed up. All right. Uh, Welcome them uh, to the class. Now, Okay, I, I just said say that, not not you know explain it further to them. Okay, uh, n- not counsel them about it. Okay, but I'm 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 good. Good. We're you know, it, I put it out there. I did. I I did offer that, didn't I? Now, here's what I want you to do. I want to help you see why it was that when Paul taught that someday the king would return. And with a shout, and with a trumpet call, he would shout, much like he did to Lazarus, rise up, that when he taught that, the Corinthians sort of yawned and said, no thank you, not interested in that. Now again, you and I are like, okay, what bozos are they? You know, I may be messed up, but they're really bad, right? But hopefully... As we go through today's lesson, you'll see, you know, maybe we and the Corinthians have more in common. And maybe, uh, you know, a symptom of that is we can get real excited about the resurrection on Easter. And maybe we get excited about it for the wrong reasons. Family, meals, festivities, clothing, kids, all these kind of things. And we kind of forget the real meaning and the real purpose. So... Uh, now, you may be thinking right now, I don't need this. I, I, I not only believe in Jesus rose from the dead, but I believe that I will rise from the dead. All believers will rise. And I'll do you one better, Chris. I believe unsaved people are going to rise. I mean, I've got this resurrection thing down, so I hope someone here today and in the next eight weeks benefits, but I'm going to be okay. And I would say good for you. I would hope that if you've been in this church for any length of time, that you do believe in the past resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection bodily of believers, and not only believers, but unbelievers. A bodily resurrection of us unto salvation and the kingdom of God and a bodily resurrection unto eternal damnation in the lake of fire for unbelievers. And I would say well done to that. And I know I certainly believe in both, but as I prepared and thought about this chapter and this lesson, I had to ask myself, and I want you to ask the same question, do I live like I believe it? Okay, so, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, I believe that. Why didn't those dumb Corinthians get it figured out? But do you and I live like we believe it? In other words, let me throw some questions out here to you. Do I face this life like I believe in a future resurrection? One of the ways to find out if you do or you don't is to ask yourself, do I undervalue my physical body? Do I undervalue it by not really taking care of it, by not thinking it's really important, by thinking it's not really spiritual? Or do I body? Do I think too much of this life and, and bodily exercise and forget that bodily exercise profits, but godly discipline, godly exercise benefits 
much more. You see, how we believe about the resurrection should impact how we live, and sometimes we believe something in our heads, but we don't really live like it, right? And so what we believe about the resurrection should impact, and it should limit as well as as uh, uh, increase the value, as well as put a cap on the value that we put on our physical body. Another question to ask is, do I live like I believe? How do I face death? Do I face death like I believe in a bodily resurrection? Let me make get more personal. Do I face aging like I believe in a bodily resurrection? In other words, do I get super depressed about my decaying body, my 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 the aging process, the fact that I'm not who I used to be? You know, wives don't tell your husband that, but and husbands certainly don't tell your wives that, but, it, you know, it's, it's a part of it. Do I, do I face that? Do I grieve the death of fellow believers like I believe in a future resurrection? Do I serve, and now you might not see the connection, but hopefully by the end of the series you will. Do I serve this church like I believe in a future bodily resurrection? Do I serve our church with all my strength? Do I put everything that I have into my ministry at this church? Do I joyfully make sacrifices in the present in light of my future belief in a bodily resurrection? You say, I don't see the connection of that. That's why we need this series. That's why we need this series. Uh, These are not just doctrines that we affirm or we leave hanging on our website or at one time heard in a new members class, it's what we should be thinking about and impacting. We may know better and even believe better than the Corinthians, but do we live any better for the Lord because of it? You see, living for the Lord is not in vain in light of the future resurrection. This chapter is full of resurrection motivation. This chapter is full of resurrection motivation for living for the Lord, here and now. You and I may be more like the Corinthians than we realize. We may believe something, but we may live like we don't believe it, and it doesn't impact our lives. We may believe in a future resurrection from the dead, but do we live like it? Do we live for the risen Lord like we're going to one day rise up like He already has? So to get into this series and to get into this chapter, I want to do this. I want us to look at two things. I want us to relate to the extreme confusion in the Corinthian church. I want you to relate to it. I want you to I, you know, understand it, but more so maybe see yourself in it. And then we need to understand the eternal consequences of rejecting the doctrine of our future resurrection. So I, I kind of want to create a need for you to return next week and in the following weeks. Because you're, I, I want you to see, I'm like the Corinthians. I need chapter 15. But also, I need it because if I keep living inconsistent with what I believe, there's eternal consequences to it. So I want to kind of create a, a, a sense of a, a, a urgency. Urgency. That's what I want to create. Actually, I want the Spirit to create that. So let's dive into that. Okay, let's dive into it. First of all, relating to the extreme confusion of the Corinthian church. Uh, just I, I've got three things here. I just want to kind of give you a little profile of the church and a little understanding of this letter. First of all, this church was extremely gifted, extremely gifted spiritually, but extremely immature spiritually. 
So they were extremely gifted spiritually, but extremely immature spiritually. And as we'll see, they didn't know that. They thought they were both because of the first thing. Well, let's, let's, let's look at it. The Corinthian church was one of the most gifted and messed up congregations in all the New Testament. All right? Uh, which is just a, a, a great truth that has many applications to it. Okay? Uh, and it should give you, and, and one of the main applications, it should give all of us hope here. Okay? It should give us all hope that you can be born again and really messed up. Now, you shouldn't stay messed up. I hope you're less messed up today than you were last year and that you were last month and even last week. But it's okay. Okay? It's okay. So let's take a look at it. And, and we're going to take a look at it by looking at chapter 1. Turn to your Bibles, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1. And I'm just going to read verses 4 through 13. Because I can prove this point by simply letting Paul address the church. So here's the beginning of the letter, and basically he's going to begin the letter by saying, you guys are really gifted spiritually, but let me tell you something else. You're really uh, immature spiritually as well. And he gets right to it. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's begin with the gifted spiritually part in verses 4 through 9. Always good to start with the positive before you get to the negative. Amen? Right? Okay, and that's what Paul does. So look what he says. I thank my God. And he's not being insincere, by the way. He's being very, you know, he's, he's, he, he, he's a godly man. He's sincere. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge. He's talking about spiritual gifts. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you uh, in the early church. The gift, the, the uh, supernatural gifts of the Spirit were given to confirm that Christ, Jesus, was the Christ. He had come and, and He had risen. He had ascended and the Spirit had come down. All this was taking place. Verse 7, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't think you could be more positive, uplifting, and that it's all true of the, true of the Corinthians. And he says, look, you are extremely gifted spiritually. And then he hits verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same Jesus who has gifted you, I now somewhat exhort and rebuke you, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each of you is saying, I am a Paul, I am a Paulus, I am of Cephas. And then the really spiritual one said, I am of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? They were so immature, it was like they had trading cards. You know how you have trading cards about your favorite players? Well, I love the Apostle Paul trading card. I love the Peter, the first apostle trading card. I like Apollos, 
the, the eloquent, deep, theological, doctrinal-orientated teacher trading card. You know, we do the same thing today. You know, I, I, I like, you know, uh, the, you know the, the, the three Johns, you know, the John Piper, the John MacArthur, and I, don't even, I forgot who the other John is, but he's out there. And uh, I you know I, these are, I, but I don't like, but I don't like this guy, and I don't like this guy, and, and we can even do that with our pastors here at our church. We can do that with uh, pastors we've had and and leaders that we've had. We we can get immature like this. So they they were they were messed up spiritually, even in spite of their gifting. You say how messed up were they? How immature were they? Jump forward to chapter three, and Paul is not done talking about this division based on carnality. And look at chapter 3, and let me read to you verses 1 through 4. Follow along. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as to infants in Christ. Man, you talk about cutting them off at the knees. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able for you are still fleshly, carnal, physical, natural. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? You guys are extremely spiritually gifted, but you're extremely spiritually immature. Extremes, okay? So that's the first thing you want to understand about them. The second thing you want to understand about the Corinthians in this letter is that extreme positions led to extreme divisions. You kind of already picked that up. In the two passages we've already read, division, divisiveness, personality, uh, such extreme immaturity was due to extreme doctrinal positions that led to extreme divisions within the church. In fact, and I'm going to give you a quick overview of the whole letter, in fact, the whole letter is little more than dealing with one divisive problem after another. So let me give you a quick overview. Verses 1 through 4, extreme divisions over favorite personalities and celebrity pastors due to just being carnal and immature. That's chapters 1 through 4. Chapters 5 through 6, extreme positions on sexual immorality in the church. What do you mean extreme positions? I mean there was a, 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 a man and his mother-in-law who were committing incest, actively living in, in sensual, sexual immorality. The church knew it, and the church was doing nothing about it. In fact, I would put forth to you, they not only did anything about it, they thought they were spiritual for not doing anything about it. And that's pretty, that's a growing issue in today American Christianity. The idea of accepting sexual perversion of whatever form into the church and thinking you're spiritual by allowing people to come into the church, profess to be Christ, and remain in their sins. So they had extreme positions on sexual immorality. Chapter 7, they had extreme positions and divisions over marrying and not marrying, as well as divorce and remarriage. And, and, and here, their extreme positions were, you had the extreme position in chapter six, 5 through 6 of, hey, let's indulge in sexual immorality. Now you got, in chapter 7, we, were, we got married, then we got saved, we were married when we were saved, and now we're so spiritual, we're going to quit having sex. 
Now, there's a lot of extremes I could go to. I wouldn't want to go to that one personally, but that's what they were. That's just how messed up it all was. Not only let's not uh, have sex as a married couple, let's get divorced because now we're really spiritual and we're in the kingdom and there's not marrying in the future kingdom. And so let's live like that. You know, so it's messed up. Extreme positions. And don't don't you think that would cause a little division in your church? Well, let's begin with your family. And if families are divided, churches are divided. And then chapters 8 through 11, there were extreme positions and divisions over eating or not eating food offered to idols. Now, you begin to start... So some people were indulging and eating the food offered to idols. Some were saying, no, we can't eat that. And what you're starting to see here is a pattern in this church. Extreme indulgence into everything. You know, whatever my body desires... I'm gonna, I'm a, you know, I'm gonna pursue it. If it's incest, I'm gonna pursue it. If it's fornication, I'm gonna pursue it. What, if, if it's eating, I'm gonna pursue it. And then there's a, extreme abstaining from things. Okay, I'm, 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 I'm gonna be so spiritual that I'm not even gonna have sex with my spouse, and I'm gonna be so spiritual that I won't eat what you eat, and that will make me more spiritual. Then we come to chapters 12 through 14, where we have extreme positions and divisions over conducting worship as a church. Who should do what? How they should do it? Why they should do it? And when they should do it? Can you imagine having worship wars in a church? Right? Can you relate? Are you beginning to see? Now, thankfully, that hasn't been an issue in our church, but it's certainly an issue in contemporary Christianity. Now, let me stop right there and say... Actually, when you look back over the first 14 chapters, all these issues have the body in some way connected to them. The body obviously is involved in sex. But also in verses 12 through 14, what's the number one metaphor Paul uses of the church is the body of Christ. It's all about the body in this church, in this, in this lesson or in this letter, and nothing uh, makes that more obvious than chapter 15. So now we're at chapter 15. Extreme positions and divisions over the future bodily resurrection of believers. It's this last chapter and the issue of the future bodily resurrection that is the key to all the problems in in this book. In fact, what I would put before you is, if you get a wrong understanding of bodily resurrection, then you get the kind of problems that I just overviewed for you. You say, I don't fully see all that. Understand. Oh, that's all right. I'm exposing you to that. You know, just, just kind of think through that, and you'll have plenty of time in the next eight weeks to get the connection. And so look again at verse 12, chapter 15, verse 12. This is kind of the root of all these extreme doctrines, all these extreme positions. Verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that He's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And and, and the implication is no bodily resurrection of the dead. So, this leads to number three. Extreme confusion in doctrine led to distortion in living. Extreme Confusion in doctrine leads to distortion in living. And I want to give you three areas where their doctrine was confused and their living got distorted. And so I've kind of hinted at it 
let me summarize it. You say, okay, you did that big overview. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not tracking all that. Well, you can track these three things. Are you ready? Here you go. They were confused about what it really means to be spiritual. And I would put forth to you, that is not uncommon among Christians. Over what it really means to be spiritual. And just to challenge yourself on that, just think, if someone asked me, unbeliever, believer, young believer, how would you define spirituality? How would you define being spiritual? You know, what would you say? Would you say, I am of John Piper, and I would say this, or I am of John MacArthur, and I would say this, or I am of, of uh, uh, Benny Hinn. Hopefully you wouldn't say that, but uh, it, it is this. Or I'm of uh, Joel Olstein, and I would say this. What would you say? How, how would you say it? Um, so let's break this down a little bit. Here's what they, here's, you can see their confusion in these three things. First of all, they consider themselves to be super spiritual people. We are super spiritual people. How spiritual did they think they were? They thought they were more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. Now, that's, that's pretty, you know, puffed up thinking. You've heard of Paul, haven't you? Well, I'm more spiritual than he is, okay? Uh, they, and here's why they, here's why they thought they were so super spiritual. And let, let me ask you if you can see yourself, and, and it's okay at this point to say, you know, have I seen this in others? They confuse possessing the indwelling spirit with actually walking with the spirit. Oh, because I have the spirit, I'm spiritual. And that's partially true. But I don't have to walk in him, I just have him. They confuse using their spiritual gifts with actually being spiritual. You know, in other words, because I'm using my gift in this church and I'm actively, or in my case, because I'm up here using my gift of teaching, then I must be spiritual. And yet, if you haven't experienced this yet, you will. It's very easy to use your gifts and not be spiritual. Okay. And, um, and there's a lot we could say on that. Uh, Another area, another one, uh, a way to explain this, they confused being saved by the Spirit with growing to maturity. They confused being saved by the Spirit with actually growing to maturity. How many of you have found this to be true? It's easy to grow old as a Christian, but it's mar- much harder to grow up. Right? And they, they thought because we have the Spirit, then we are mature and we are super spiritual here's what they did number two they confuse being stirred by the spirit with being changed by the spirit they confuse being stirred by the spirit with being changed by the spirit now this is something i think we've all been tempted by and it's certainly something that's greatly confusing in american christianity they confused having spiritual experiences with actually growing in the spirit how many of you have uh, went away on a retreat or went on a missions campaign or when you were younger you went to a youth camp we have Bible youth camp coming up and isn't it easy to go on these adventures and to have spiritual experiences how many of you have had spiritual experiences like that and you've been stirred but how many of you come back the week after only to return to your same sins only to return to your same routines, only to return to your same uh, lifestyle. You know, one of the things, you know, it, it hurts, it, it grieves, 
when at youth camp I hear young people say, I want this year to be different. They're already seeing this pattern in their life. Uh, This year I want to come back and be different and be changed. I commend them for their discernment. I commend them for their desire. But it it needs to change. We need to change because of these experiences. I'll never forget uh, when we first started going on missions awareness campaigns and many of uh, the people in this class uh, were going on those and we were going on them and yet we are giving as a church, as a class to missions was not increasing. So we kind of had to have the come to Jesus talk and saying, look, we're not going to keep doing these if it doesn't change us. Because when we go on a missions campaign, we ought to come back not only stirred, but changed to give more to missions, pray more to missions, and go more for missions right here at home. So they confuse being stirred by the Spirit with being changed. You see, they enjoyed talking about spiritual things, acting spiritual, experiencing spiritual things, and seeing them themselves as spiritual to the point that in this letter... The word spiritual is used 16 times. It's the Greek word pneumatikos. Pneumatikos. You hear in that the Greek word for spirit, pneuma. They were pneuma people. They were spirit people. We are the spirit people. We are super spiritual. And yet most of the the reason this spiritual word is used so often is Paul's using it to say, you're confused about what real spirituality is. You think this is spiritual, but really, this is what spirituality is. And then number three, this leads to, they consider themselves to be superior spirit people. They consider themselves to be superior. When you think you're super spiritual, you also think you're super superior to those around you. Even, they thought, in terms of the Apostle Paul. But look at 1 Corinthians 3.1. Paul brings reality to the situation. He says this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual. And it doesn't say men there. That's added in the translation. He says, but, brethren, I'm not denying your salvation, but, brethren, I could not speak to you as pneumatikos, the word that they liked, the word that their badge of honor. We are the pneumatikos. We are the spiritual ones. And he said, you know what? I can't talk to you like you're spiritual. I've got to talk to you as fleshly carnal, as infants in Christ. Wow. I mean, you just, you just can't, I mean, you know, uh, to, it, it would have been fascinating to have sat in that congregation when this letter was read and when that verse was read. Now, they didn't have verses when that sentence was read. Because I'm telling you what, there would have been a variety of reactions in that room. From anger to surprise, to shock, to conviction. So the first doctrine that they were extremely confused about was sanctification, what it means to be spiritual and grow to maturity. And consequently, confusion in this area led to distorted living. They considered themselves very spiritual, but were immature, very immature. They considered themselves super spiritual, but some were super immoral. How do you get that? And the rest ignored their sin and, as I said, thought they were spiritual in approving of their sin. That's going on today. 
A second major doctrinal confusion was in the area of eschatology. You say, eschatology? What's that? That's the end times. That's number. That's the second uh, 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 bullet point you have there. They were confused about already living in the future kingdom. They were confused about already living in the future kingdom of Christ. You see, the reason they thought they were so spiritual was because they thought they were already fully living in the kingdom of the risen Christ. Christ has come, He's risen, the Spirit's come down, and man, we are in the kingdom. We're kingdom living right now. There's nothing better than what we have right now. See, they confuse the not yet aspect of the kingdom of God with the already aspect. You say, help me with that. 1 Corinthians 4. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. I'm going to let Paul explain it to you. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 8 through 9. This will help you. Okay? So this isn't stuff I'm coming up with. I'm not looking. I mean, I am looking at theology books and commentaries, but this isn't where I'm coming. This is coming right out of the Scriptures. It's right here. 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9. Here's what Paul says. And, and you need to put a little sarcastic tone to it. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we also may, may, may reign with you. Now, two times he uses in there the word already, already. I said already, not yet. See, they thought the, the coming kingdom was already here. We're kings. We're, it's like we're already risen and we're already living like we're living in a new creation. And he says, oh, I wish that was true because if that was true, then I as an apostle would be living as a king. But let me tell you how I'm really living. Verse 9, for I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death. The guy was like always being threatened with being stoned to death being beheaded, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. And we could go to other passages where Paul talks about being shipwrecked and suffering and starving, and he's like, you guys think we're in the kingdom? Come hang out with me for a while. Oh, I wish we were in the kingdom, because then my suffering would be over, my my sacrifices would be done, and, and we would reign. Uh, another indication of this is 1 Corinthians 13.1. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13.1 and look what it says. 1 Corinthians 13.1. It says this, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I, many believe, and I, I would tend to believe this as well, that they thought their spiritual, uh, using uh, speaking in tongues, which we know from our study of Acts, was known languages. But if you don't have an interpreter, known languages can sound like gobbledygook. And they started saying, hey, let's just keep speaking in tongues because that's the heavenly language. That's angelic. I mean, we're, we're talking like angels. Yeah, but I don't have a clue what you're saying. It doesn't matter. I'm spiritual. And by the way, do you speak in tongues? Because if you don't, you're not spiritual. Does that sound familiar? Does that still go on today? Sure it does. Sure it does. We'll talk more about this and how it leads to distorted living, but for now I just want you to see 
how it was a major confusion about the do- how it became a major do- confusion about the doctrine of our future bodily resurrection. And that's the third bullet point that you have there. They considered themselves to be too spiritual for resurrected bodies. You know what was that song? I'm too spiritual for my shirt. Well, I'm too spiritual for my bo- or I'm. What, what, I guess it wasn't spiritual, wasn't it? Too sexy, wasn't it? Too sexy for my shirt. Uh, no, I'm too spiritual for my body. I'm too. I'm sorry, Dane. I didn't mean to mess that song up for you. Uh, I, I, I'm too. I'm too spiritual for my body. In other words, they thought the resurrection of. They thought because the resurrection of Jesus had taken place, the reception of the Spirit had taken place. They got it all. And they didn't need anything. They were spirit people. In fact, we're so spiritual and we're such spirit people. The resurrection has already taken place for us. We don't need... A, in fact, what we're looking forward to in the future is getting rid of these bodies. Because then we'll be really spiritual. And there's a lot of people who think the future after death is focused on that. And so you're back to verse 12. Why? How do some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead. Now, there's more that we will uh, tackle, but let's look at the eternal consequences of rejecting this idea, or, or, or the eternal consequences of thinking, I'm too spiritual for a body in the future. And there's three. And the rest of the lessons in this series will draw out these consequences, but I just want to give you to kind of chew on. First of all, rejecting the doctrine of a bodily resurrection of the dead, uh, uh, of those in Christ, leads to, number one, a loss of tension, a loss of tension between the already and the not yet, of already living in the Spirit, but not yet in Christ's coming kingdom. And what do I mean by that? Well, without this tension of already in the Spirit, but not yet in the kingdom, we will, ex- without that tension, we will expect more from this present life than is available at this time. See, if you think the kingdom has already come, you'll think everybody ought to be healed. And every time I pray for healing, healing ought to come. In fact, every time I serve the Lord, I ought to get rewarded with it. I ought to get rich for living for the Lord. Because God wants all His people, uh, all His sons and daughters, all His his kingdom children to be rich. Have you ever heard that on TV? If you do, turn it off and go do something else. We'll begin to think, well, hey, I'm so forgiven that any sin that I do doesn't matter. So I can sin, but I'm, I'm, I'm already fully forgiven. You know, God doesn't expect anything more from me. It can, you can expect more from this present life. You can begin to think, I shouldn't have to struggle with sin. Also, we will enjoy less of the ple- pleasures of this present life and tend, tend to abstain too much from the physical joys of this world or indulge too much in them. You see, if you think everything's kingdom and spiritual, you'll begin to downplay the joys of this body. Okay? You'll begin to say, well, to be really spiritual, I gotta deny my phys- all my physical urges. So I can't like pizza anymore. I can't enjoy a sunset anymore. I can't enjoy, uh, participating in sports anymore because I'm too spirit, you know, that's not spiritual. 
that involves the body, the physical, the natural. So I'm going to abstain. And the more food that I abstain from, the more spiritual I become. But then there's a second, uh, there's another side to that. Is we can indulge our body too much. Hey, I'm forgiven. So who cares if I drink too much? Who cares if I eat too much? Who cares if I indulge every sexual desire? I'm forgiven and you can't say I'm not forgiven. And besides, who I am in Christ is more important than what I do with my body. Are you relating to this? Not necessarily, maybe you don't struggle with this, but you know, you, you can see. And then, uh, and maybe in our circles or in our church, we might struggle with this third aspect of this tension. We will anticipate less of what God has for us in the future coming kingdom, and this will always lead to a loss of motivation for greater sanctification. In other words, if we think we got it all now, then we won't strive for the rewards that we have in the future. Well, we'll develop that more. Second thing that we will lose is a loss of motivation for living for the Lord. A loss of motivation. Without the bodily resurrection in the future, we lose one of the greatest motivations for living for the Lord. Look at the last verse of this chapter. The last verse, verse 58. Here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's how he... So you got this grand chapter. We're going to talk about all sorts of doctrines and resurrection. And how it ends is this. Get busy for the Lord here and now. And don't quit. Now, without the hope of our future bodily resurrection, living for the Lord is in vain. It's in vain. And we are the most pitiful people on the planet. Say that five times fast. Without the bodily resurrection, everything we're doing for the Lord is in vain. And we are the most pitiful people on the planet. I, and good-meaning people often say, even if all of this wasn't true, I'm glad I lived as a Christian. And I get what they mean by that. The Apostle Paul said the opposite. The Apostle Paul said, if this ain't true, and I'm not resurrecting, we are some sorry people who are investing money that we could have been enjoying now, who are investing time that could have been spent in more pleasurable, self-satisfying ways. Because here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But here's the other part of it. Verse, verse 58. With the hope of our bodily resurrection, we are motivated. We are motivated to live for the Lord and to leave it all on the playing field of this life. See, when you leave it all on the court, like in the March Madness, it's because it's one and done. You got, I mean, we got, we got to play out of our minds because this is it. Okay? Well, guess what? This is it. We got to, we got to leave it all on the field now because the reward's coming. The reward's coming. And then this is the one we'll deal with next week. A loss of salvation. If we give up the doctrine of the future resurrection of all believers, and if we live like we have given up on it, a loss of salvation may be our reality due to never being saved in the first place as evidenced by not holding fast to this gospel essential. 
And that's what Paul said in verses 1 and 2. So next week, we're going we're gonna to tackle that little beauty right there. And we're going to see that what we're talking about is important to how we serve, but even before that, it's important in relation to whether we are saved. Is that worth coming back for? All right. Well, one day the risen king's going to return, and he's going to shout, and he's going he's to say, Rise up! And he'll, like Lazarus, say, Joe, come forth! Terry, come forth! Chris, come forth! The wrong response to that is, No, thank you. I'm doing just fine without a resurrected, glorified body. I'm too spiritual for that, Jesus. The right response is going to be, Yes, thank you, Lord. I couldn't wait for this. I lived in light of this, and when I died, it was my one soul, S-O-U-L, <laughs> desire. Okay, I couldn't wait for the resurrection. It's great being with you, Jesus, but not being without a body. I want to be with you with a body in this new creation. Amen? That's what we're going to celebrate next week and for the weeks to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, you want us to know, be, and do what we hear in your word. Today was a no lesson. We needed to learn some things. We needed to relate to some things. We needed to understand some things. And I pray that your spirit did his did His work, what only He can do, and, and that we know better why we need to pay attention to this chapter and why this series is important. And I would pray, Lord, that each person here would just make a commitment to do two things. First of all, come every week for the next eight weeks as, as consistently as possible. We all have different things, I understand. But, Lord, we would just say, you know what, I just need to be here for this. And secondly, we would begin reading 1 Corinthians 15 and read it repeatedly and read it and meditate and praise and pray over it. I pray in Jesus' name. 